Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Understanding the Fine Print, the who, when, and what to do about ARIA in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Neurology module. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, MER, and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, my name is Dr. James Galvin, and welcome to the neurology module of Understanding the Fine Print, the who, when, and what to do about amyloid-related imaging abnormalities in patients with Alzheimer's disease. This activity is part of a series of six distinct activities, each targeting the commonalities and unique aspects of ARIA recognition and management across four specialties, neurology, radiology, emergency medicine, and primary care. In part one, our panel of diverse specialists gave a background of the key features and implications of ARIA that are relevant to clinicians across all of these specialties. In this module, we'll dissect all of the aspects of ARIA management that are expected to fall into the hands of neurologists to help guide practical clinical decision-making surrounding this unique adverse effect. To help with this discussion, I'd like to welcome Dr. John Toledo, Assistant Professor of Neurology, Nance National Alzheimer's Center, Houston Methodist. So I'm really excited to get going. Um, welcome, John, for joining us in this lively conversation. Thank you, Jim, for having me here. So let's spend some time talking about ARIA recognition and the management. And we're really going to focus on the role that neurology is playing here. We're going to do this by going through a case. So our case is of a 67-year-old man diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment due to AD who presents to discuss treatment options. He states he's interested in an amyloid-targeting disease-modifying medicine. We know he's an ApoE4 carrier. He has hypothyroidism, hyperlipidemia, and an incomplete right bundle branch block. So the first question I want to pose to you is, should you be thinking about ARIA prior to therapy initiation? Thank you, Jim. And yes, I think this is uh, something we should always be thinking. And uh, often when we discuss initiating new treatments, patients always have questions about what are the benefits I, uh, I, will, I will get but also what are the risks? And they want, if possible, to know if we can predict or, or give them an idea how likely one of these events can happen. One of the risk factors that we know about this patient, namely being an ApoE epsilon 4 carrier, can modify this risk. In the clinical trials that evaluated the response to aducumumab, lecanemab, and donanemab, they absence or the presence of one or two copies of the ApoE epsilon 4 allele were the strongest predictor of ARIA-E and also ARIA-H, even like a six times higher risk of having ARIA-E in the case, for example, of lecanemab. And if somebody would present already at baseline a high number of microhemorrhages, older age, and then presence of cerebrovascular disease, and we may see how they use uh, guidelines or uh, recommendations that have been given. Uh, some of these might be some exclusion criteria. No, I think you brought up a good point. When we think about the adverse event rate at the approved dose um, for the two approved medicines and for denatamab, which is still under investigation, what we know from the literature is that the estimated rate of ARIA-E 
is 35% versus 3% in aducanumab, 13 versus 2% in lecanemab, and 28 versus 1% in denanumab. When we look at ARIA-H, uh, the, the rate of ARIA-H versus placebo in aducanumab is 28 versus 9%, in lecanemab is 17 versus 9%, and denanumab is 31 versus 7%. And then each of the individual medications do have other prevalent adverse events, and they differ a little bit by the medication. So, for example, an aducanumab headache was the next most common adverse event at about 21%, over 16% seen in placebo. Um, in lecanumab, infusion reactions occurred in about 26% of individuals compared to 7% in placebo. And in the studies published on denanumab, nausea occurred in about 11% of individuals compared to 3% in placebo. I think one other thing that, and I want to ask you this about the, you about this, John, um, ARIA-E and ARIA-H are also seen in the placebo group. So, you know, when we're thinking about this, what does this influence our choice of medications? Does it choose our choice of uh, treatment? What do we discuss with the patients? This is uh, one of the challenging uh, factors. Patients with Alzheimer's disease or MCI due to Alzheimer's disease uh, may have microfemorrhages. And one of the things that we won't be able to discern is uh, if a patient that presents some mild area E or area AIDS, if this was uh, causative by the, same, by, by the treatment itself. Because uh, in the clinical trials, uh, we are able to distinguish the, the treatment group and the placebo group, and then we can compare uh, the frequencies. But in an individual patient, we won't be able to discern. But uh, luckily, we have like some recommendations. And, and uh, once we see these imaging changes from the baseline scan, uh, what we are going to do is uh, uh, use these criteria to, to guide our changes to treatment and how we monitor these patients. So let's talk a little bit about the MRI criteria. Uh, why don't you lead us through that? Yes, and I, I think as as we discussed, uh, one thing we want is to have like an MRI uh, within one year, and then we are going to look for these, which uh, based on the current recommendations are thought to be uh, exclusion criteria because they put a patient of uh, at higher risk of having complications during treatment with disease-modifying therapies. So as you can see, the presence of acute or subacute hemorrhage, having more than four microhemorrhages, if there is multiple areas of superficial sclerosis, or if the patient has infarcts that are greater than one and a half centimeters. Another factor to consider is if there is like a significant diffuse white matter disease or white matter hyperintensities, these patients might be also at higher risk of complications and therefore might not be ideal candidates for this treatment. Now, I mean, for our neurology colleagues watching this, I mean, if you think about this, you know, on first pass, this might eliminate a lot of people from therapy, right? Because almost all our patients have white matter disease. Um, many of our patients with Alzheimer's disease have, you know, cerebral amyloid, you know, um, amidosis. And so they do have some evidence of, of some microhemorrhages. So I, I think, as you mentioned, it's really looking for the burden of this going into the trial rather than whether some of these things may be present or not. So how would you counsel this patient 
on initiating amyloid beta DMTs given his baseline aria risk. Remember, he's an APOE4 carrier. He has some vascular risk factors. He does carry a bundle branch block um, that's known. Um, how do we counsel the patient on this? So uh, one of the things uh, is a nice thing is uh, we are get, gathering more and more information from the clinical trials, and, and we saw their the numbers and uh, what we can tell them is that uh, based on one or two copies, which in this case we don't know, they are at uh, an increased risk of ARIA. Um, another thing is uh, ARIA is not uh, a synonym of, of having symptoms uh, and there are different degrees of ARIA. And most of the cases uh, or most of the patients who have radiological ARIA, it, around 80% of them don't have symptoms, so approximately like 20 to 22% of them uh, are symptomatic. Also in the cases who have ARIA AIDS uh, without, uh, without edema, uh, those cases uh, with uh, isolated ARIA AIDS, the rate of symptoms is less than 10%. So on overall, uh, the, the, the rate of symptomatic ARIA is less than, than 5%. However, once a patient present area, they are at greater risk uh, of other complications and progressing. So this is something that um, each patient and each physician will need to discuss with them, and it will be best uh, assessed based on the comfort level that patients and their loved ones have uh, for risks. So after discussion with the patient, they decide they want to start treatment with a DMT. In this case, they're starting aducanumab. So, so, John, let me ask you, what strategies should be used to mitigate the ARIA risk and maximize ARIA detection? So, uh, I guess uh, one of them would be to uh, potentially increase the frequency, and there are like some recommendations to do some uh, additional MRI scans uh, in addition to the ones that are uh, done on a regular basis. Um, and the other one is uh, making sure that uh, patients um, monitor and control the, the blood pressure because uh, if they don't control their vascular risk factors, that may increase the baseline uh, area AIDS uh, risk that, that these uh, patients have. Uh, and I think another thing is educate them well uh, about the potential symptoms that might be related to area so that uh, if these appear, we can do uh, an additional MRI to, to evaluate any complications. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how we do this risk mitigation. Yes, first we are gonna get a, a baseline MRI and you will see that there are different schedules for the Atacumunab and Lecanamab treatment guidelines. And in case of Atacumunab, we're gonna do it before the fifth, seventh, ninth, and 12th infusion. And in the case of Lecanamab, it's gonna be before the fifth, seventh, and 14th. And as we discussed, patients who are APOE epsilon 4 carriers, we may consider doing additional scans. And what we are gonna be looking for is for differences between the baseline MRI and the follow-up MRI, because there might be already some baseline changes that we need to consider and subtract when we evaluate changes. Uh, also something to consider is that this is the timing of the MRIs is based on the infusion visits and the time between infusions is different uh, other common app is uh, on a monthly schedule, whereas uh, Lecanemab is every two weeks. So 
This patient now presents for his fourth dose of aducanumab. At presentation, he reports a new onset dizziness, headache, and confusion. John, what would you do to evaluate this patient? So most of the signs and symptoms that are associated with ARIA are going to be non-localizing and also not very specific. The most common ones are going to be headache, confusion, altered mental status, dizziness and vertigo, nausea and vomiting. And actually, some of the symptoms like headache were also frequently present in, in the placebo group because this is a very prevalent uh, symptoms or syndrome that presents in, in the population. Uh, then we can also see fatigue, uh, gait disturbance, uh, and then vision disturbance uh, and encephalopathy. And a small percentage of patients can also present uh, epileptiform changes uh, and seizures. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a neurologist or if thinking about the patient presenting in an acute care situation, you know, those first four symptoms uh, you know, a very, very wide differential diagnosis starts to pop up in my head, right? Um, particularly if they start describing like the worst headache they've ever had. Um, you know, it's going to trigger a lot of things going on in my mind, and it might trigger some symptoms going on or ideas in the emergency medicine physician's mind. Um, so it's really important if you think about this to be able to dive into the history and see, is this person actually on a DMT? Or you might have a very, very different approach to your differential diagnosis. So let's go back to our case so we can follow what's going on. So this patient, again, presented for his fourth dose of aducanumab and reported a mild headache, nausea, and slight dizziness. So on your evaluation, his MOCA score, Montreal Cognitive Assessment Score, is now 20, which represents a three-point decline from his prior visit. He has symptoms, and the timing of the symptoms appears to be in relation to his initiation of his amyloid-targeting DMT. So, John, would you consider an out-of-sequence MRI in this individual? Yes, I think uh, this would be the next step until we, after getting the clinical history and potentially a, a physical exam, this, is, this would be our next logical step. I agree with you 100%. You know, an out-of-sequence out of MRI should be ordered to rule out ARIA. So let's look at his images here. Um, so we can see in the circled area, there's this hyperintense signal in the right temporal parietal lobe. So you can see the sulcal effusions here. Okay, um, It's small area, so it's less than five centimeters. This would meet the criteria for mild ARIA-E. So let's think about what are going to be the next things we're, we're going to consider. What's What's running through our mind? John, let's talk about this grading. How, how do we do this? Yeah, and so here is a, a table where we're considering these two types of uh, imaging findings. So we have the ARIA-E, which stays for edema or effusion, and the ARIA-H for, for emirates. And in both of these, we are going to look at the parenchyma and the side. And so here we have some examples where we can see the sulcal effusion on the top left. And on the next two examples, the parenchymal changes where we see a vasogenic edema in the occipital temporal lobe and in the frontal lobe. And then we see microhemorrhages, which are those star findings in T2-star GRE SWI sequences. And so those are parenchyma. The other finding in the salsa area is a superficial siderosis. So 
how do we grade them? And so here is a nice table, and there are some things that are similar that may help with our uh, mnemonics. And so area E, what we're going to look is for a mild uh, presentation is one single area that is less than five centimeters in its longest uh, diameter. Moderate is when we have one between five and 10 centimeters, or we have multiple, but the largest of them is gonna be less than 10. And severe is when we have one or multiple ones that are greater than 10 centimeters. In terms of the area eight for the microhemorrhages, which are less than one centimeter, we're gonna have four or less. Then again, when we get to five to nine, new ones is gonna be moderate and the same number now, 10, if we have 10 or more microhemorrhages, it's going to be severe. And this should be compared uh, to the previous baseline MRI. In terms of superficial sclerosis, what we are going to count is there is one, two, or three or more new focal areas. And so that's how we are going to classify the radiological severity. Well, that makes it very easy because, you know, a nice chart really highlights, you know, how we're doing this and is the type of information we're relying on our radiology colleagues to tell us, but also we should be aware of it as the neurologist who's reviewing these scans and, and talking with the patient and the family. So let's talk a little bit about some of the impact of, of ARIA on disease-modifying therapies. When do we suspend? Um, so we have a little algorithm here. Um, so if we see ARIA detected on the MRI and the patient is symptomatic, as in this case, um, we have to decide, is this mild symptoms, is it mild ARIA-E, or is it something more significant? If it's mild symptoms and mild ARIA-E, on clinical judgment, we could continue therapy and monitor them very, very closely. But if they have moderate or severe ARIA of any type, or at least mild ARIA-H, then the recommendation is to suspend treatment and monitor them with monthly MRIs. So John, when, when I'm looking at the MRI um, for these people that decided to suspend treatment, um, what, what am I looking for when I do these serial MRIs? Am I looking for different things, whether it's ARIA-E or ARIA-H? Yeah, that, that's correct. So uh, in terms of ARIA-H, uh, we don't expect a, re a regression or disappearance of the lesion. So they are gonna stay there. So what we want to see is that there are no new uh, area H lesions. This is completely different from what, how we monitor area E. In terms of uh, area E, the expectation is that over time, we, in the serial MRIs, we see a decrease and a resolution of the symptoms. And based on the findings of, of the clinical trials, uh, we expect that within four months or four serial MRIs, we are going to see that approximately 80% of the area E cases are going to resolve. And then we might consider resuming a treatment at that point. So let me pose you a question now about this particular case. Would you continue therapy in this patient? So um, I think this is a, a, case, a patient that after monitoring, uh, we will, dis I think it's, it's always good to, to involve the, the patient and their family in the discussion, explains the risks uh, and benefits. I, I always tell my patients I like to give them options and counsel them. Uh, but I think this 
might be a patient uh, where if if they feel comfortable uh, with what has happened and the potential risk to continue the treatment. But what we find based on the clinical trials is that there is a lower risk of having ARIA once the treatment is uh, restarted. So there is a little bit of a um, debate on, you know, what we should be done based on recommendations from different groups. We, we see what's in the package insert, but we can also go to the literature and see that in some papers they give recommendations. So in this example from, from Cogswell in the American Journal of Radiology, under mild RAE, because they were symptomatic, their recommendation was to suspend dosing, and then once it's resolved, restart. But in other recommendations, it suggests that you could continue based on your clinical judgment. So I think it's important just to be aware that there are different recommendations, but your clinical judgment always is going to come into play, right? So let's go back to our case and see what's happening. One month later, the patient returns with severe dizziness, headache, and confusion. Should this person be referred to the emergency department? Well, Jim, I think we all agree that that would be our first answer in this case. Yeah, I agree with you. So in the emergency room, an MRI is ordered. Um, and uh, if you don't even have to look at the picture of the MRI, you can just see that now the case is red and we're thinking about what's going on, right? And so remember, here's our baseline. John, take us through this. What are we seeing? Yeah, so we have, uh, on, the, on the left, we have the baseline MRI. Um, we don't we we don't see any significant uh, area findings, but then as we look at the out of the cycle MRI that one was done, uh, we see like there is a diffuse uh, area E, and we can see changes uh, clearly in the posterior area uh, as we discussed comparing uh, with press and other conditions. It might be that is uh, more asymmetric than what we see, but we see multiple areas with the larger area uh, on the right uh, occipital temporal lobe that is greater than 10 centimeters. And I, I would say that also there is some effacement uh, of the side there. So we also see uh, some mass effect there. And so in, the, in this case, uh, what we are finding here is that this will be a severe area E finding. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at this, it's quite striking, right? Because it's bilateral in the occipital lobe, but there's also frontal lobe involvement. I mean, this is a multifocal process going on. Um, and I would agree with you. I think we have to think about what we're going to do for this person now. And so what do we do for this person at this moment, for this patient? You know, what's our recommendation? So, uh, I mean, this this case is based on uh, on a case report, and you can see the, the reference there, but he, uh, there was also some uh, hypertension. So this patient was uh, admitted to the hospital and actually was admitted to the ICU to, to manage the, the blood pressure. And so as part of the workup, um, in addition of the MRI, they ordered an EEG and they saw some uh, epileptiform changes, which is uh, a more uncommon complication or one of the more rare uh, complications that we see. And so this patient uh, received uh, IV steroids and also was started on an, an anti-epileptic treatment uh, because of the concern of, uh, of seizure. You know, we had talked about this earlier. You had said that, um, you know, the incidence of, of seizures in 
in individuals is, is quite low. It's less than 1%. It's around 0.4% of cases. cases. So, um, yeah, but this, when it does happen, you know, obviously we need to act upon it, right? And so I think you started to talk about this, what's the optimal management approach for this patient. Um, and I just want you to go over this again for the audience, because this is really important, because this is one of the more severe symptoms that someone could experience. Uh, yes, and there is like uh, no clear guidelines, uh, or you don't, you won't find some recommendations on on when uh, to 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 start the steroids or the optimal dose of steroids. But uh, based on the the case, the, the severe cases that have been reporting reported, what we think is that uh, a short cycle, like we use in other neurological conditions of a, a high dose IV methylprednisolone for five days uh, followed by oral taper is considered in, in these cases of severe area E, like the one with some. And uh, the other uh, case, the, the other uh, treatment indication here was in the setting of a patient who is uh, encephalopathic and has uh, epileptiform uh, activity and an antiepileptic treatment was started. So we have to think about when to can discontinue. Um, and we do have some prompts. Um, so based on what we know from the aducanumab trials and what we'll continue to learn from the other trials that either completed or ongoing, um, from a radiological perspective, patient has a macro hemorrhage to prompt to discontinue. Um, if they have more than one area of superficial siderosis, uh, which actually was the most common cause for study withdrawal from the aducanumab studies. And if they have more than 10 microhemorrhages since a treatment initiation, remember this is where that baseline MRI is really important because many patients might have microhemorrhages already, but if they have more than 10 new ones since initiation, um, from a radiological perspective, that would tell us it's time to discontinue the medications. From the clinical perspective, if they have more than two episodes of ARIA, um, if they develop severe symptoms, or if they develop any medical condition that's going to require anticoagulation. Um, and in this case, I think we have lots of evidence that there's severe symptoms uh, because of the epileptiform activity seen on the on the EEG. Um, so I would lean toward discontinuation. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. And uh, one of the things that we may have not uh, mentioned before is that um, in general, there is an understanding, although we will need uh, some more information, that patients on anticoagulation should not be started on an anti-amyloid disease-modifying therapy because of their increased risk of hemorrhage. So let's go back and see what's going on with our patient. Um, so he was started on levoteracetam um, and treated with IV methylprednisolone, 1,000 milligrams for five days. What happened? Uh, a lot of the symptoms resolved. He showed a dramatic improvement on follow-up MRI, and he showed MOCA improvement over the next six months. Right, so a lot of the symptoms that were caused by these acute events uh, resolved, um, and so we can see again looking at his MRI, methylprednisolone was initiated, and you can start to see resolution of the REE here in the frontal lobe, and particularly in the occipital lobe. And as you mentioned, there was some effacement of the ventricle, and we can see now there's much less effacement. And so with resolution of ARIA in the cognitive symptoms, we continue to see improvement on his MRI till it started to look a lot like his uh, initial baseline MRI. And this corresponded 
to clinical improvement um, based on the symptoms that were noticed um, when he was experiencing symptomatic aria. So, you know, is that John? Is this what we would expect um, as a successful resolution? Is this the type of thing we're going to be looking for in our patients who are treated with DMTs? What uh, we would expect for the RIAE is that a majority of the patients there will be a resolution of of the finding, and we just uh, need to uh, suspend or stop the treatment and, and continue monitoring uh, to, to to see that we get a resolution like the one we are seeing here. So you know, finish it up for us. Take us through the what's going on with this case. Yeah. So uh, as we said, pa patient was admitted to the hospital. Uh, an antipoleptic treatment was started. Patient got a, a five-day bottles of methylprednisolone, and uh, as as we discussed, and actually we saw the the, the follow-up that we did, like an oral uh, taper was uh, started, the the treatment was discontinued. We saw the monthly MRIs that were done for monitoring, and uh, we always. Uh, we don't treat MRIs, we, we, I, or I always say we also treat patients and people, so we want to assess how they are doing and how the cognitive uh, and neurological exam changes during this time. So again, uh, I want you to check out our closing module for a multi-specialty discussion on the collaborative management of ARIA. This module is also summarized in a downloadable interactive infographic, so you can access the information quickly on your own time you can find the link on the program landing page. John, I wanna thank you so much for uh, uh, participating in this. Uh, uh, this was a great discussion. I, I think the audience really learned a lot about uh, what to do in managing ARIA. Uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Jim, for inviting me to discuss the, this very important and timely topic. Hello, my name is Dr. Yeah, let's try it again. Messed up my own name. Talking too much. Did you hear my email ping? I did, I did. I heard it. Well, it's, I guess it's better than the parrots, right? I don't know. I like the parrots. So when we think about the adverse event rate in terms of uh, the approved at the approved dose or at the proposed produce, yeah, the opposed Say that again. Uh, restarted, but it's not negligible. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Medical Education Resources, MER, and Efficient LLC, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.